It's Wednesday the 7th of July 2021 and it's 7pm. I'm Sean Blow and welcome to this week's edition of Resistance TV. Chris is taking a longer way to break this week, however, we are joined tonight by Rod Driver, our resident academic, with his fifth episode of The Elephant in the Room. Rod will be talking about the corrupt financial system and later we'll be joined by Lizzie, who is manning the YouTube chat room tonight, and she'll be taking your questions and comments to put to Rod after his presentation. So if you want to ask anything from Rod, please drop your questions in the chat and any comments are always welcome. So good evening, Rod. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Hi, thank you for joining us again. Um, following from the financial crisis that began in 2007, it became clear that banks were engaged in a huge range of criminal and unethical activities, mis-selling, rigging markets, money laundering, tax evasion, subprime mortgages, ripping off customers and fraud on a massive scale. These crimes have not gone away and the activities of the banks are as fraudulent as ever. The financial system is a clear example of an industry that is rotten to the core and is no longer fit for purpose. So, Rod, um, over to you. Well, that was a great introduction. So I would hope that everyone except perhaps the very youngest uh, viewers will remember that back in 2007, 2008, we had an enormous financial crisis, and that was then followed by many years of uh, what was labelled austerity, where we had very big decreases in government spending, and it created sort of catastrophic outcomes for, uh, for many of us. And this wasn't just in Britain. This started in America, and then it touched many parts uh, of the world. So the financial system is this sort of huge thing that most of the time doesn't get talked about but it's kind of always there behind the scenes. And uh, people come into contact with it when they need a mortgage and everyone has a bank account and so on. And it's it's there. It's behind the scenes with everything. So if I talk about corporate crime in the weapons industry or I talk about corporate crime in uh, the medicines industry, then that, that happens in kind of selected areas. But the banks are engaged in all of it. And unfortunately, what people realized uh, – during and after the crisis, was that a great deal of what they do is either completely criminal or in a reasonable society, we would say that it's criminal, but it, it's defined as just unethical at the moment. So I'll talk a bit about the different ways in which that works, and then we can do some questions and answers at the, uh, at the end. So prior to 2007, the financial system in Britain and America had grown enormously and uh, almost half of American corporate profits were in banking prior to 2007. So there's a huge amount of money being made through the banking system. And this had come about because from approximately the 1980s, we'd had completely inadequate regulation of the banks. So older uh, viewers will remember an event in the mid-1980s called Big Bang, where banking went from being this very pleasant gentleman's agreement type of system to being a very cutthroat, competitive American-style system. And things have gone uh, downhill since then. So if we look specifically at the crisis and what we learned then, and then we'll talk uh, more widely. So the crisis was triggered by what are called subprime mortgages. So people were lent money that they couldn't possibly afford to repay. 
And the people making the loans said to these borrowers, oh, don't worry about the fact that it seems expensive to repay. We'll just remortgage in a couple of years. We'll start it off cheap and it'll be fine. And so it was lots and lots of lies. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, if the bank had made a loan and then it carried the risk, that would cause problems for the bank. But in fact, the banks were very clever. They knew that a lot of these loans were going to go bust. They wouldn't be repaid. So they thought, let's sell these loans, these mortgages, on to somebody else, some other sucker. So they introduced a process called securitization. Don't worry about the technical terms. It just means that you bunch lots and lots of mortgages together, and then you chop them up and sell them to investors. And these are incredibly complicated. And the bank said, oh, yeah, these are safe. These will be fine. They got the credit ratings agencies, which is another group of organizations who are meant to tell people about how safe or how risky an investment is. And the agencies said, oh, yeah, these are very safe. They gave them very good ratings. Lots of organizations invested in them. So pension funds invested in them. But it turned out everybody had been lying. And what happened was eventually large numbers of these mortgages could not be repaid. And then all the people who bought these mortgages, expecting to be repaid money year after year after year, uh, they, they lost lots of money. And in fact, the banks had come up with a, another way of doing a fraudulent activity and making money on it. They knew that the investments they had sold to their clients would not be repaid. They created yet another type of investment that enabled them to bet against their own clients. So there's deliberately huge amounts of complexity, opacity. Nobody really knew what the contents of these investments were. So it was impossible for anybody to really understand them. Even the banks themselves didn't really understand them. And eventually when the bubble bursts, um, people lose money, but there was a house price crash. And so lots of people went into negative, what's called negative equity. So that means the house is worth less than the mortgage. And so um, the banks want to repossess the property. Banks were losing money hand over fist. They stopped lending to each other, so they couldn't lend to businesses. So businesses were going bust. There were repossessions, job losses, uh, and all sorts of issues. And various senior people in banks have been interviewed about what was going on during all of this time. And somebody in Goldman Sachs, which is one of the big American banks, it was one of the, the worst offenders, although they were all of the big banks uh, were behaved pretty awfully during this period. And they described their clients as muppets to be ripped off. So basically, the whole banking system saw its main way to make bigger profits as just ripping off customers. And various experts have said the regulators, who should have been able to stop this, actually, they knew what was going on. And in fact, they knew how to stop it, but they chose not to. OK, so the government actually could easily have done things very much earlier and stepped in to stop this. But it chooses not to because there's so much lobbying and so on in terms of the banks fund politicians. And so the politicians do regulations that the banks like. And so uh, the, the main kind of uh, crimes or frauds that we've discovered the banks do would include mis-selling. So uh, some people will be familiar with what's called the PPI scandal. That's the uh, personal insurance scandal. <clears throat> Many people were sold insurance policies that they would never be able to claim on. And eventually that got found out and banks have had to pay back 
billions of pounds in compensation. Other banks have rigged markets. So Barclays was fined a huge amount of money for rigging one of the main markets, which is called LIBOR, which is about uh, interest rates and so on. And uh, other banks have been fined for funding terrorism. They've been fined for helping uh, other companies do tax evasion and accounting fraud. And they've done tax evasion and accounting fraud themselves and so on. So, in fact, I came across an astonishing statistic whilst researching this, that in the last 20 years, the world's banks have been fined a total of $330 billion. US dollars, okay, many, many times greater than any other industry in the world. In fact, probably more than all other industries put together. So it is the most fraudulent industry in the world. And one of the things that you'll notice if you ever look into this is that individuals in the banking system are almost never prosecuted. There are one or two exceptions, but it's very, very rare. And so what, what people who tried to work out what was going on realized, oh, so I'm, I'm going to jump back a little step. So the banks had basically gone bust and governments didn't want them to go bust. So they stepped in and they did the bailouts. Now, the bailouts were much, pe- much bigger than people realized. So I don't have the numbers for the UK, but in America, the total size of the bailout was $7 trillion. Once you're up into the trillions, it's an incomprehensible amount of money and it's just you cannot really understand how much it is. So astonishing amounts of money needed to bail out the banks. And the strange thing is the way the government provided money to the banks is that over the next few years, much of this money ended up in the pockets of the rich because it it maintained stock market prices and housing prices. So it turned out that in the five years after the crisis, the richest thousand people in Britain had actually doubled their wealth whilst everybody else was suffering through austerity. So there were the cuts to all sorts of government services. So one of the things that you discover when you look at the banking system, it is actually constructed in a slightly strange way, where you've got built-in conflicts of interest. That means that people in these companies can actually gain something, they benefit from doing something very unethical. So in the case of Uh, the crisis, they were betting against their own clients. Now, anybody who studied history will know that right back in 1929, something very similar happened. It was documented very clearly in America, but actually it also happened in other countries too. There was an enormous uh, crisis caused by bankers being able to do pretty much whatever they wanted to do, whatever frauds, whatever scams, and it was incredibly destabilizing for the whole economy. And eventually there's a crash and everybody suffers. Now, what they did in America after the 1929 crisis was they realized you can't have a banking system where a a bank uh, makes money by screwing its customers. So banking has sort of two parts. There's what's called uh, retail banking or consumer banking. There's basic loans and saving. And you can do that in a way that's very, very safe. And then there's another section to it, which is a kind of gambling system. And it's, it's called speculation, but speculation is just another word for gambling. Now, if that part of the banking system is kept separate from the, the retail banking, then it might be OK. And if it's kept small, then it might be OK. But what happened was it's not separate. 
and it's not small. In fact, the gambling, and we'll talk about it a bit more in a minute, now dwarfs the main system. So it's incredibly destabilizing. Now, one of the things that, um, that, that happened uh, during this crisis was that the executives were paying themselves astronomical bonuses, even when they were causing the banks to fail. And you realize that the pay had nothing to do with uh, with performance. It never does. That's just a, a kind of charade, a myth. Okay, pay is always about executives knowing how to extract ever more wealth uh, from the system. So after 1929, we'd re- they. In America, they separated out the different parts of banking, and that kept the system stable for about 50 years. But then gradually, because companies lobbied the government to change the rules, the separation of banking was uh, disappeared. Banks were brought back together again, and that's how they became um, bigger and bigger and more unstable all over again. Well, this time around, we had the opportunity, if we wanted to, to separate out the banks after the 2007 crisis, but the regulators have decided they don't want to do it. The bankers are too influential in politics, and so we still have the same completely unstable system that we had just over a decade ago. And in fact, it's slightly worse than it was then. The biggest problems haven't been fixed. There's been some little tinkering at the edges. If you watch a news program, they'll talk about banks having more reserves than they used to have. But in fact, the same fundamental problems still exist. And banks are now much bigger than they were. And many experts have said they're actually so big and so complex that they cannot be regulated as they stand uh, at, at the moment. And in fact, after the crisis, uh, one American expert said, well, what is it that banks keep trying to do that is making things so risky? Because in business, we often talk about how capitalism and markets lead to innovation and great ideas. But he suggested that actually since the ATM, so the hole in the wall machine where you take your cash out, banks haven't come up with a single innovation that has benefited society. All of their innovations are simply about moving the profits around and making the profits for the banks bigger and bigger and bigger by creating more complexity. So so that's what we learned from the the crisis. So I'm just going to talk about a couple of other really important things that occasionally crop up in the media but never get dealt with. And so some people will have heard the idea of a tax haven. Uh, Other people talk about a tax haven as a secrecy jurisdiction. The whole point of a tax haven is wealthy people and wealthy companies can put money there and they can hide it from the tax man. And it's estimated that there's probably upwards of 20 trillion US dollars. Again, an astonishing amount of money in tax havens. But nobody knows the true figures because nobody's keeping the data. Now, if you hear about tax havens on the news, probably they're talking about Panama or the Cayman Islands or some third world country. But in fact, the leading tax havens in the world are Britain, America and Switzerland. And Britain is particularly important because London is at the centre of a global network of tax havens throughout many of its former colonies and and small, uh, small islands and so on. And so the four major banks in Britain, so HSBC, Barclays, Lloyds and and RBS, uh, 
they actually have 1,600 subsidiaries in tax havens. Okay, so although whenever you see them advertising on telly or you see a spokesperson for one of these organizations being interviewed and discussing something, they seem like reasonable business who believe in the idea of the law. In fact, a great deal of what they do is about hiding other people's money and actually hiding their own money in tax havens away from the tax man. And what you'll discover is that many when we talk about third world countries or developing countries, we often say, well, corruption is a problem in those countries. But in fact, corruption at the scale we're talking about, involving billions and billions of pounds and dollars, it cannot take place without the mainstream banking system participating and helping. Okay, so they, they really are active behind the scenes, helping fraudsters, helping criminals. And I do mean criminals, you know, people who are drug dealers, drug growers and so on. They help them hide their money all over the world. And then there's a separate group of banks, which is important in Britain and in some other countries, which are private banks. And you'll hear, always hear nothing about them. They're not publicly owned. They, uh, they give very little information to anybody. But the 10 biggest private banks in Britain, they control over four billion, sorry, four trillion pounds. So again, a lot of that ends up getting stashed in tax havens. So an, another area of the banking system, which people know very little about, which is active in helping criminals. Okay, so the, the, the mechanism by which rich people take their money out of a country and put it in a tax haven is known as capital flight. Now, the word capital often means different things to economists, but here we're just talking about money. So capital flight is rich people, many of them in poor countries, but not all of them, trying to hide their money. And what, what um, people who study this sort of thing have realized is that there is an enormous flow of wealth from poor countries to rich countries. So if you look at, say, uh, uh, in the mainstream media, there'll be this discussion about aid, and some British politician will turn up and say, well, yes, we've given £20 million of aid uh, this year, and so on. But in fact, the amount of money that goes from poor countries to rich countries is much, much greater than that. It's estimated approximately two trillion dollars, US dollars a year, go from poor countries to rich. And the single biggest cause of that wealth transfer from poor countries to rich is capital flight. So there was a, there was a very uh, famous study, or perhaps notorious is a, is a better word than famous. This was way back in 1979, but there's no reason to believe that the, the sort of mechanisms and the details have changed. And it was an analysis of Nicaragua. And the researchers found that three quarters of the money that was loaned to Nicaragua immediately left the country and was stashed in the bank accounts of the rich and powerful who ran Nicaragua. And there's a very good researcher for anybody who's ever interested in looking at this in more detail, a guy called James Henry. And he wrote a great book. It's a few years old now. But all the information is, is still relevant. And it was called Blood Bankers. And he explained how in, in many poor countries, you've got a tiny group of people controlling most of the wealth. So in, in El Salvador, you have just 14 families controlling nine-tenths of their land and their finance. And in Nicaragua, you have just one family controlling about a quarter of the, uh, of the farming land that's, that's usable for crops. So you've got these incredibly rich, powerful people, and many of them 
either are the government or are directly connected to the government. And they find all sorts of ways of taking money that really belongs to the people and wealth that belongs to the people and stashing it in their own private bank accounts. So this isn't just a case of uh, bankers and companies pulling a fast one um, and working against the British, American or the Swiss government. Right? The British, American and Swiss governments are actively supportive of what's going on. Switzerland loves it, the fact that it is one of the world's leading uh, tax jurisdictions. And every now and again, if, if you're sort of reading the news and you're alert and you're thinking about these things, there'll be uh, an article saying that there was a whistleblower from, uh, from a bank in Switzerland and he tried to point out how criminal the, the bank that he worked at was being. Well, instead of the bank being prosecuted, these days, it's always, in Switzerland, it's the whistleblower who's prosecuted. So the government actively protects the criminal activities of the banks and the people who use the banks and stash their money there. Uh, and to a lesser extent, the same is true in Britain and America. They could easily come up with regulations to stop this, but there are so many rich and powerful people in Britain and America who benefit from this system, who make donations to the politicians to say, these are, these are the laws we want, these are the regulations we want, and uh, the government is happy to oblige. And, of course, there are people in the British government. It came out a few years ago that David Cameron has offshore bank accounts. And when the Panama caper, Papers came out, people discovered that just in this one kind of small um, uh, legal office, there were loads and loads of rich and powerful people with a lot of money uh, in, uh, in offshore bank accounts. And one of the reasons that countries struggle with taxation issues is that because of what's happening with the uh, the, the tax havens. So if you look at a country like Greece, uh, everyone's always saying, oh, Greece was in terrible trouble and had to do austerity because uh, it was profligate. It spent too much money on, uh, on too many lazy people and things like that. It's the standard story you read in the Daily Mail. But in fact, one of the main reasons Greece struggles is that they find it difficult to tax their tax evaders who keep stashing money offshore. And the same is true uh, in other countries. It's estimated that probably there's maybe £16 billion a year of unpaid taxes in Britain that the rich and the powerful just, just hide offshore. And then this also applies in a more complex way with companies who engage in what's called transfer pricing. Now, I'm not going to go into any of the detail. The idea is that a company that has a division in Britain and a division in Africa can set up a division in Panama or another tax haven, and it could pretend that the profits that it's actually making in Africa, it's actually making in Britain, it can pretend they happen in, uh, in Panama, and, oh, well, the tax rate is zero in Panama, so they don't have to pay any tax. And so uh, there was a famous study of Rupert Murdoch and News International, and they had a network of 800 offshore companies. So these were companies that were only existed to uh, to hide uh, to hide profits and to hide taxes and it's estimated that hundreds of billions of pounds and dollars are lost in tax revenue every year because companies can engage in this system uh, of what's called transfer pricing so hiding their profits and uh, one of the world's leading authorities on the accountancy system so a guy called Prem Seeker who's now in the House of Lords. I think I may have mentioned him in passing 
on a previous occasion, he has pointed out that none of this could work without corrupt accountants. And that's the main accountancy firms. It's not some little fly-by-night guy in a secret office. It's the big accountancy firms that do the accounts for all the big companies. They somehow managed to miss a $7 billion bribe to Saudi Arabia. And they overlook when money is getting stashed in a tax haven and tax is not being paid. And they know it should be being paid. And various people have said, actually, the simple ways to uh, to deal with uh, transfer pricing. In fact, there's a, a tax expert called Richard Murphy, who's well worth reading, and he's connected to the Tax Justice Network. And he's actually created a system where you would completely change the way companies report their their taxes, which would eliminate this problem completely. And in fact, people are starting to talk about it seriously. People in positions of power are starting to talk about it, it seriously. So it one day may come about, but it, it hasn't really yet. And another thing that people have pointed out about many of the techniques that people who are doing tax avoidance or tax evasion do is that most of these things are never tested in court. So a lot of people have a very legalistic way of thinking about the law. They think this is the law. It's either legal or it's illegal. And it's very black and white. But in fact, most of the schemes that the accountants come up with to help tax avoiders and tax evaders are actually believed to be illegal by the people who create them, right? But they never get tested in court. And until they're tested in court, you can get away with it. And uh, it's a question of whether the regulator uh, has the manpower and the resources to go after these because they would be going after many, many companies and people and people with power, and it would be a very, very big challenge to do that. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the gambling side of uh, of banking, and this is where the numbers we've talked about trillions already, and that's amount of money that's incomprehensible. So a trillion is a thousand billion. If you have a thousand trillion, that's called a quadrillion. So unless you're a mathematician all of these numbers become slightly irrelevant. They're just astronomical sums. The amount of money that is gambled in um, currency speculation each year is estimated to be approximately $2 quadrillion. This is many, many times bigger than the entire economy of the world. So this has nothing to do with, say, insuring a, a transaction on a ship which might get sunk at sea and making sure you don't lose money and so on. This actually is just gambling. So some people will be aware, some of the older listeners or viewers will be aware that in 1992, uh, George Soros gambled um, on sterling, or he bet against sterling, and he made lots of money and the British government lost lots of money because he was able to do gambling on, uh, on the currency. And then something similar happened in 1997. There was lots of uh, speculation in relation to various currencies, particularly in Asia. And they had the 1997 Asian currency crisis. And this was so dramatic for these countries that uh, it's estimated that about 24 million jobs were lost in the space of, of one year. It was an astonishing consequence. So you can see that gambling on the financial system can have enormous negative impacts uh, all over the world. And as well as gambling on currency, people can gamble with things called 
derivatives. And they, these have funny names like futures and options. And it's a way of uh, gambling on what the future price of um, something that you can buy on the stock market might be, whether the price is going to go up or you can make a profit by betting that it's going to go down and things like that. Now, um, Warren Buffett, one of the leading financial experts in the world, describes derivatives as financial weapons of mass destruction. They can be so destabilizing. And in fact, in 2007, at the same time as the financial crisis, there was a huge amount of gambling on food and oil prices. And this affects the price of food in the third world, and it affects the price of oil all over the world. And the effects were so dramatic, it led to food riots in many poor countries. Okay, so all of this gambling by a handful of rich people looking at their computer screens has enormous negative impacts all over the world. Um, okay, there's a, there's a few more things that I could talk about. And uh, I'll just, I'll take a little break there. We'll just see if um, people have got any questions and if not, I'll, I'll spend another five or 10 minutes just talking about one or two more things that people might be interested in that are, are related to, uh, to the system. Thanks, Rob. That was really interesting. And I love the way you put your presentations across because they're so easy to understand. I remember a film that Michael Moore did a few years back where he was talking about the financial crisis and he went to Wall Street to interview workers as they were coming out. And he was asking them, what is a derivative? And nobody could explain to him what a derivative was, um, which was quite funny. And it's uh, it, it, very pertinent that you brought that up. Um, I have a question for you, Rod. Um, during the last bank bailout, the government in Finland decided to jail their bankers and then have gone on to drive a successful and thriving economy. Why didn't our government jail the bankers instead of foisting austerity on the British people? Well, that's a really good question, actually. Uh, and in fact, there's, there's, um, there's a famous documentary which was made about the crisis called Inside Job. And, um, and a chunk of that focused on Iceland. And um, they did something similar with their bankers. They, they actually locked them up. Uh, afterwards, because what the bankers are doing is criminal. And there's no reason at all why Britain and America and every other country can't arrest and prosecute criminal corporate executives. And that includes bankers. No reason at all. We have laws that enable us to prosecute these people. What they're doing is a systematic form of Fraud. I mean, fraud on a scale that you can't comprehend. And this is one of the great jokes that people often make. If you rob a store of £20, you know, you'll be up before the magistrate and there's a chance, depending on your history and so on, that you'll go to jail. Right. If you steal £20 billion because you're in control of a bank, the worst that happens is that the bank gets a fine. But that's only under certain sets of circumstances, often nothing happens and no individual is prosecuted. And uh, it's, it's a sign, really, of just how corrupt our politicians have become. And it's, it's a mixture of things. 
So one of the things is what's called ideological capture. So ideology is about what people believe. And unfortunately, politicians and, and even academics uh, in Britain and America have completely bought into the mindset that um, what's good for business is good for Britain or is good for America. And so corporate profits are all they think about. And they completely ignore the, uh, the criminal activities, the unethical activities and the downsides for everybody else. They consider all of that to be less important. And it's just a question of us as a society saying we have to completely change this mindset. If a small country like, say, Finland or Iceland can, can do this, there's no reason why big countries can't do it. Uh, but at the moment, I see no sign of anyone really senior within the British or American governments wanting to do anything serious in relation to either the banks or in relation to corporate crime and unethical activity more generally. And, and the, there's so many different parts of the system which reinforce what's going on. So partly it's ideological, partly it's the fact that big companies pay, pay big bribes to finance the politicians. And in America, this is enormous. You know, politicians get very rich from corporate funding. We have the same here, but to a lesser extent. But you still got an element of corruption built into the system um, where banks or any other company or any other rich person can make these financial donations. And very quietly behind the scenes, regulations will get made um, to suit them. And then, of course, you've got the idea that when these people retire from politics, they will go and get good jobs with some of these business, or they will go and get good jobs with some of these lobbyists, and they will be very well paid. And of course, they're being rewarded for their service to these companies whilst they were in politics. So, so long as they were doing regulations that suited these companies, then they will be very, very well rewarded. So you have all these aspects of the system, which actually motivate people to be corrupt. And you have no part of the system, you know, there's no criminal penalties and so on uh, that are actually enforced that will that will actually deter any of these activities. So it's only um, by talking about these things and getting everybody to understand it and then getting everybody to try and discuss how we might stop it uh, in the fullness of time that, that anything anything will ever really change. Indeed, and it's one of the things that many of our people on the chat and many of our members of the Resist movement often talk about is the corrupt politicians. And it's a big revolving door, isn't it, Rod? You've go, you go into politics and then you maybe get a lordship or you are talked around by these big lobbyists from, from these big corporations um, giving handouts. And the Tory party in particular seemed to like rewarding their donors with uh, titles to be yeah. then go into, on, into the House of Lords. So we, we then have a second tier of governance within this country who are, I would say most of them, are there just because... They've given donations to the Tory party, who then in turn reward them with big government contracts um, and a title to go with it. Um, it it's infuriating. How, how do we stop this? Well, so Chris asks me this every week, and I'm sad to say that I don't have any simple 
solutions. And uh, oddly enough, I had a fascinating conversation at the weekend with uh, a campaigner called Craig Murray, who was the former British ambassador to Uzbekistan, and he exposed the the torture um, going on in Uzbekistan, that the British government was using information from torture, and he tried to expose it, and he thought when he exposed it that the government would, would have nothing to do with the torture. In fact, it was the opposite. They they were keen on the torture, and they tried to smear um, Craig Murray. And I was talking to him, and he was saying, you know, do, do we see a, a route forward? And um, it, it was be, between us. We we saw no simple solutions that so many aspects of the system are now so corrupt that uh, it's, it's really going to require a huge effort by an awful lot of people to, to very actively start campaigning and protesting. And, of course, that's becoming more and more difficult with the recent bill saying you can't protest. And I, I actually find this quite shocking in that if you look back at the history of social change, you know, take women's rights and women getting the vote and so on, you know, that came about because women actively campaigned and there was the famous incident where one of the campaigners threw herself in front of the king's racehorse and so on. And without protest, we will never achieve serious change you know it's very very difficult for anyone to have an avenue so it does require that all of us essentially protest against the inability to protest you know that's the sort of new law that we must stop and we must work against and so on and it's going to require a very large number of people to to get active in politics and to start working together I, i feel we're a bit um uh we're not united enough in terms of what we campaign on and so i think over time something you know people will coalesce or groups will coalesce and, and we'll work out some way to work together but at the moment that's not happening and so everybody needs to do what they can and we'll have to see what emerges yeah we i mean this is why we started the resist movement in the first place you know we we need to get all the groups together all different organizations campaign groups and we we, we need to start protesting um against the same things like corrupt politicians. Uh, we need to be campaigning for the NHS. We just can't sit on our backsides any longer and wait for the leader of the opposition or the Labour Party to do something about it because we know they won't. Um, I, I and, agree, uh, I agree. There's, yeah. there's something that I think is interesting. That if you look at the number of people who, who are interested in challenging the privatisation of the NHS, and then you look at the number of people who are interested in campaigning about climate change and the number of people campaigning about other things and so on. There's an awful lot of people who are wanting to campaign about something. So it's about, I think, working out ways that we can start recognising that actually these are not really separate topics. They're separate symptoms of the same underlying problems. Absolutely. If we can start to work together then, uh, you know, who knows what we might bring about. You know, climate change happens because of the pollution and so on. And you look at what the oil companies do and you look at what all the other polluting industries do and you realise we've got to challenge those companies. And you look at the privatisation of the NHS and you realise it's driven by big American companies doing the lobbying and getting the laws rewritten behind the scenes and so on. And those are not separate issues. We've got to start putting these things together, joining the dots, and saying it's about taking power from the 1%, taking away corporate power, 
and and not letting the mainstream media drive the debate and allow us to play uh, allow ourselves to be divided and when you look at certain issues and i think the most obvious has been on identity politics yeah. and about how people on the left can't agree on certain issues on the left and there's lots of infighting and lots of squabbling and actually on most topics those people would all agree with each other yeah. and if we could stop squabbling about the things that the mainstream media is telling us to squabble about ignore their agenda and work together on our agenda then i think i think things might we might have a chance you know i think there's a lot of people would like the system to change a lot yeah definitely okay well before we just uh, we're going to go over to lizzie in a second to get some questions and comments from people in the chat room uh hi to all our regulars over there mark um Atcha john kevin um jonathan i'm sure you're all there in the background somewhere uh and keeping lizzie busy um so um before we go over to Lizzie, I just want to remind people, you can donate to us. Obviously, we do this. We put this uh, broadcast out every week. We don't earn any, any money from it. We're all volunteers. Um, the Resist Movement is a, a volunteer and member-led uh, movement, uh, which you can join at resistmovement.org.uk. Or you can um, maybe pay a donation uh, towards the cost that we incur for putting out the Resistance TV show every week. Um, which is uh, paypal.me forward slash festival of resistance. Okay, so can we go over to Lizzie now, please? Is she there? Lizzie, you're oh, on, Lizzie. on mute. I learned Hi, that. Lizzie. Hi, how are you this evening? Okay? I'm fine, thank you. How are you all? Yep, great, thank you. So what, what's going on in our background well, chat? tonight a lot of a lot of questions you've answered a few of them uh while you've been talking but i think a few stand out the since atms no innovations have come from banking you you talked about earlier and haven't all innovations come from public funding i.e kevlar was invented for the space uh space station or the space race and now it's used in, in armour. Uh, so the innovations thing is, is a really good question, actually, that um, the, the mainstream presentation of capitalism about them being these risk-taking, innovative organisations is a complete distortion of what reality uh, is, is like. And in fact, Noam Chomsky is an outstanding writer on this, and he talks about what he calls really existing capitalism which is the incredibly strong relationship between state-sponsored research, so it could be through universities funded by the government, and the eventual profits of big companies. And so, in fact, studies have been done. If you take a, an iPhone apart and look at all the important components inside, the memories, the processors, all sorts of things, uh, apparently every one of those or nearly every one of those actually comes from government research. And the US government, I'm very critical of the US government about nearly everything, but one of the things it does amazingly well is state-funded 
research on technologies. It's brilliant. It's been doing computers and high-tech stuff for decades. And the problem at the moment is it then takes those technologies and hands them off to the private sector. It hands them to people like Bill Gates. And so, and those people go off and make astronomical profits because they're effectively functioning like an extension of the government. And in fact, there, there was some research, I think I might have mentioned this in the first or second presentation, showing that if you look at where billionaires' wealth comes from, an enormous amount of it comes in industries that are very strongly supported by governments. Yes. And so they're taking the wealth of the nation and concentrating it into into private hands. And so um, it's the old, old story, isn't it? From the public purse to the private pocket. That's that's right. Yes. The, the next question was uh, London, the city, London City tax haven uh, has been exposed several times, uh, like by Craig Murray, etc. You know, all the things have been exposed. But the story gets no traction. Then the media that broadcasts the story gets attacked in some way. What can we as individuals do? Can we create lists of the banks that are helping criminals? Uh, well, so that would be a very long list. I think that would probably be all of the major banks. So this is part of the problem. And this is one of the things you notice with sort of consumer campaigns, you know, about saying, let's not buy from that shop. Let's find a more ethical place to go. But when you start digging below the surface, you realise it's very, very hard to find big ethical businesses. Perhaps we ought to list those that are ethical then. Uh, well, yes, I think there are one or two organisations in each industry. So banking would be an example of that, where they are trying to come up with ethical banking ideas and so on. And so that is something that individuals can do. Um, I haven't researched them in any depth. I've come across one or two names. So I think there was one called Triodos Bank. But if, if I've misremembered, and that's actually the most unethical one in the world, I apologize. But I think that probably was trying to, to, to be a bit more ethical. And so, so there are one or two. Uh, but it takes a lot of research, but it's worth doing if you feel you have the, uh, the energy. And it would be good if there were organizations that are listing more ethical companies that, that members of the public can can move to. And that's a small step uh, that we, we could do. But there's a, there is a question mark over the media that they will sometimes highlight an issue and they won't talk about it as a systemic problem. They'll say, oh, look, we've spotted this company doing, you know, something illegal and so on. And what are we going to do? And they'll interview a minister and the minister will say, well, yes, of course, this is a serious problem. We must do something about it. And then it disappears from the debate. Yeah. And I think the alternative media has an important role to play here. And the alternative media is just sort of in its infancy. But we really do have to take some of these topics. So I think corporate crime is the obvious one. And make sure they are front and centre in our discussions all the time of what we need to change about our society and get more and more people talking about a handful of really big, important issues. And I think eventually that puts a little bit of pressure on the mainstream media to start talking about it again, but to keep it in the media, to make it a subject for everyone. Yes, well, nobody's managed to shut Craig Murray up yet, quite. Not, not yet, not yet. So we'll wait and see. Fingers he's crossed. Facing, he's facing a similar future to Julian Assange, I think. Is, yes. uh, Can I just mention that for people who don't know, Craig Murray um, may well be imprisoned for eight months 
on a very, very weird technical charge in Scotland. And so we, we have to wait and see uh, what happens there. And we've got lots of lots of questions. Um, obviously, is cryptocurrency a solution? Well, that would take a program all by itself, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'm not um, going to touch on cryptocurrency uh, today. It's not something I've researched in enough detail to be able to write a good guide. And I suspect there are quite a lot of unknowns about it. So it's a kind of watch this space and, and we'll see see where it goes. The only thing that I've heard about it is that it costs far more to mine in CO2 emissions than it could ever benefit anybody. So, you know, there's like you said, it's such a dense subject. You know, we couldn't possibly even discuss it in an entire program, let alone on on the end of one, which we've got to stop early for the footy, apparently. So, it's the cricket, yeah, I think the cricket. Oh, is it the footy? Oh, I've got one more quick Sorry. question, then, Lizzie. Please, please, can you talk about odious debt? Um, who monitors the IMF and world banks? Um, is it true only one person has been arrested for financial crimes because of the crash? Was Iceland the only country to deal with it? And are there gatekeepers in every campaign group making sure no one collaborates? Ooh, Which wow. So um, the first two points, you were talking about odious debt and the World Bank. And in fact, what I've tried to do mostly in the last few presentations is talk about how things work in Britain. Uh, we've talked a little bit about sort of capital flight and tax havens and so on, but it, it sort of connects to, to Britain and the banking system. I'm going to do completely separate presentations on how the whole international economic system is structured to transfer wealth from Porto Rich. So we can we can talk about that uh, another day in uh, in a couple of months, uh, probably. But I, I find that an equally fascinating subject, actually. And people being uh, pursued for financial crimes because of the crash and Iceland's part in it. Oh, and also an interesting fact, I, I don't know, perhaps everybody knows, that the Icelandic women uh, did a one-day strike, which brought the country to its knees. Mm. And uh, that's the sort of solution we should be looking for. Now, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard of the Icelandic women um, story. Um, but one of the things that I do feel very strongly is that I think women, if they worked together, could really make a difference to our societies. And it always seems odd to me that uh, on any That's kind of... That's why we're closed down and told that we are we are not as good as certain others. Yeah. So I, I think there's a, there's a weird hijacking in the media of debates about feminism. And it's always about getting equal numbers of women into the top jobs. But if you're getting equal numbers of women into the top jobs in a world where men have made the rules, the women you're going to get in the top jobs are the most vicious, aggressive, cutthroat, brutal Hillary Clinton, Margaret Thatcher and yeah. Angela Merkel. Right. All Pretty with a Patel. Terrible... Pardon? Pretty Patel. Pretty Patel. Right. So, I mean, the list, the list is quite long. We need a different set of rules. And I think ordinary women and ordinary men, too, but ordinary women especially need to recognise they could play a part in trying to create a fairer society with a completely different set of rules. But again, they need to start working together. And so, again, that would be a whole topic in itself. But I do think it is something that we need 
to make into a topic that people start talking about more um, and so on. Uh, because I think that is where change will come from in the fullness of time. Well, I think it, it already is. There's a, a lot of us women in the media and in organisations that are that are starting to to network and to collaborate. Um, the trouble is, of course, that there are gatekeepers in in most campaign groups and most institutions and organisations. There are gatekeepers making sure that those events, that those ideas aren't aren't fulfilled, that those ideas aren't even heard. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so I think it's a question of. So, I think a one day woman strike uh, is is a wonderful idea. And so, you know, women actually sat down and talked about what their goals are, what they're trying to achieve, and then thought about that type of thing. I think things could change really quickly. Well, and Iceland being the only country that uh, that that prosecuted all the all the people responsible for the banking crash, and people that had invested in Iceland through their pension plans, etc. You know, corporates, councils, um, they repaid all of those, didn't they? They well, did. I, I, yes. Okay, you yeah. guys seem to know more about how much they repaid than I do, but um, that that may be the case. I'd have to go and and get some some data to be. To be sure. Yeah, we're talking about Iceland. Guys, thank you very much for joining us, Lizzie. Um, We're going to have to finish there, unfortunately. We never have enough time at the end for questions. Um, But thank you for moderating this evening, and and it's lovely to see you back. So see you in uh, a couple of weeks, hopefully. Um, Rod, um, just quickly before we go, I know before we came on air, we were chatting briefly uh, backstage about. a letter that you'd sent to some judges regarding the Julian Assange case. Would you like to tell our viewers about that? Yes. So I'm an active campaigner for Julian Assange because I believe he's been very unfairly treated. He's basically been persecuted and he's been ruled that he cannot be extradited to America. And yet he's still in Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison. Now, the detail of the way he's been treated by the judges has been so extreme that uh, at the end of last year, I actually wrote some reports to the police. So I filled in some crime reports about misconduct in public office by three judges and one prosecutor. And um, I provided them with an update recently because of some new information, and that's kind of ongoing. But I'm hoping that over time, here on Resistance TV and other places too, we can start to talk a little bit about... Uh, his case, and also about um, judges not being fair and not being unbiased, and about the need for the police to seriously investigate their behaviour, particularly in relation to Julian Assange. Although I think there might be uh, also an argument in relation to Craig Murray, but my focus for the time being is on uh, their behaviour in relation to... um, to Julian Assange. So I will keep people posted uh, on that. And perhaps next week I'll, I'll post some links if people are interested and they can, they can take a look um, at the, a more detailed um, version of that so they know what's going on. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much, Rod. Um, and thank you again for tonight's ap- episode. 
Um, if you want to read more about the subject that Rod has been talking about this evening, you can look at Rod's blog, The Elephant in the Room, and the link is available on the description down below. Um, Chris will be back next week, and we'll see you at the same time, Wednesday at 7pm. Please subscribe, click the thumbs up button, and hit that icon bell for further notifications. If you'd like to leave us a message in comments, we'd love to read your feedback and suggestions for future broadcasts. So thank you once again and good night.